Good afternoon, good evening, good night, good tomorrow, good yesterday. This is the Drunken UX Podcast, and you are listening to episode number 64, where we will be reviewing some of the usability and layout and website issues related to library websites. I am your host, Michael Feenan. I'm your other other host, Darren Hill, back from the void. The depths of the, <laughs> the depths of the, hell. The, deep geometry that boggles the human mind and terrifies small children <laughs> folks yes. this episode of the drunken ux podcast is brought to you by our friends over at new cloud you can check them out at newcloud.com slash drunken ux for any of your interactive campus mapping or illustration needs go stop by say hi and let them know that drunken ux sent you uh let's see where can they find us aaron you can find us over at Twitter or Facebook.com slash DrunkenUX or Instagram.com slash DrunkenUX podcast for all of your UX meme needs. And also at DrunkenUX.com slash Discord to come and chat with us. Discord is the place to be. It's worked quite well. And uh, we had mentioned we did this to kind of facilitate the use of a new tool we wanted to use. Mm -hmm. Super happy with it. So if any other podcasters yeah, listen to this episode... Now, uh, the Craigbot for doing multi-track recording remotely is a heck of a tool. So It's pretty amazing. Otherwise, this evening, uh, last week, I was having a sippy, sippy taste of <laughs> my Jim Beam Devil's Cut in my mm. mini cask that is seasoning in there. Um, I This is now uh, a week after that episode recorded, and so it's now been in, I think, well, this would make, uh, well, right at, Two weeks then that that has been seasoning. How do you like it? It's uh, it's Jim Beam. I mean, there is that. Um, I don't yeah. love it in general. It's not bad. Um, okay. I, it was it was all right. And and last week I kind of noted that I I definitely could tell the difference after a week uh, in okay. the cask. Two weeks is still very similar. It's not like a huge you know generational jump by any means. It definitely has brought out more of like this sort of cinnamony and okay like um like a wet leather like if you've ever smelled like good wet leather okay and okay you're, you're familiar with that kind of nose yeah it's, it's got that but as kind of a flavor to it it's it, i i think i said last time you know it sanded off the edges i think was the phrase i used <laughs> it, it's definitely a mellower uh palette than what i would expect from like especially normal jim beam Okay. Um, what do you got, Aaron? I spent all afternoon doing yard work, like pruning dead branches and pulling down wild grapevine and ripping up roots from the ground. And the sun was really hot, and I came inside, and I was like, I want something that's going to like kind of rehydrate me, but also is like a refreshing thing. Your own blood? <laughs> right. That was so, weird, right? That was weird. I, I call it um wildberry death and it's basically just like random like beverages that i had in my kitchen at the time what it is is it's about a shot of blue curacao almost a full shot of triple sec maybe a full shot i didn't measure it i just eyeballed it and then it's got some snapple raspberry iced tea 
cranberry juice. It's actually really good. I mean, it tastes like uh, just a mixture of berries and there's like a tiny bit of bite on it. I don't know, man. I'm like, I'm beat and I got a lot of sun and I'm really sore and my skin's all scratched up. And this thing is the bomb. It's, so. It sort of sounds like a jungle juicy kind of like, yeah. here's what we got. Let's throw it together. I, I got no regrets, man. It's, there's enough fruity it's tasty. stuff then. It'll go down smooth. <laughs> yeah. This uh, week, I want to talk, and we've already alluded to this, I think, in the last probably two episodes, and we're finally getting to it. There's an article over at themarkup.org um, on blind users struggling with the state of coronavirus websites. Mm-hmm. Um, I think this is an important topic. A, we're recording this literally on Global uh, Accessibility Awareness Day, so this, this makes for a good uh, topic for this, even though it'll not be released until the start of June or something. <laughs> but it's a uh, a look at, uh, they say they looked at uh, all 50 state pages and ran accessibility tests against them, just automated tests, just to see how they fared. Because especially when you consider a disease that disproportionately affects um, lower income people, elderly mm-hmm. people, you know, folks who may have uh, other disabilities may be more at risk um, to contract the disease. You're talking about information that should be accessible to those at the greatest risk. Right. What they found it will probably not surprise you that many of those sites didn't fare great. <laughs> Let's point out sort of defensively on their part. Obviously, many of the states had to set these sites up very quickly and probably without a huge amount of planning. And so mistakes happen, and that's just mistakes were made. <laughs> so they start like uh, here's one of the quotes, and I've got several things I want to read to you guys out of this, so I apologize for that. But there's some good information in here. Forty-one of the fifty state pages surveyed contained low contrast text, which can mm. be challenging for users with low vision, including seniors who are at the highest risk for the outbreak. Contrast is going to come up later in this episode as well, um, mm-hmm. so keep that kind of in the back of your head. Vision, we we so often frame accessibility in terms of visual acuity, obviously not the only accessible uh, accessibility issue, but it does make up a major one because one of the most common things is eyesight. My generation, the generation, the generation X. Man, this is way too early. 31 of the 50 state pages contained empty links or buttons. This means the screen reader hits the link or hits the button and doesn't know what to tell the user. This is a basic <laughs> thing, and it's, it's the kind of thing that is so easily uh, remediated. But yet over half the states had problems accomplishing that very simple task. Keep in mind, these state sites are also some of the sites that are most strictly regulated by accessibility laws, and yet still so much of this problem. Right. They used Wave to scan these uh, sites, and they reported that on average they found 28.5 errors per coronavirus homepage. They did note this is lower than typical websites, which had an average of 60.9 errors per homepage. This is based on a scan they did of like the top million homepages um, back in February. Is Wave similar to like Axe and the um, similar to like the tools where you just click a button and then it scans the page and then tells you all the like things that are wrong with it? 
Yeah, yeah. You know, uh, WebAIM, there's a plugin yeah. for it that you can just drop into your browser too and use. Um, and so, yeah, and I, I'll talk about this later. I used Axe to do some of this um, for okay. the talking about library websites. Uh, but yeah, it's just a tool that goes through. The thing is, I would expect government websites to have a lower incidence rate of flaggable errors. Keep in mind that only something like 40% of accessibility problems can be detected with automated tools. Um, so that's something to consider. Mm-hmm. But they are governed by these laws, and at least in some cases, states and, and the federal government and these organizations try to have some baseline standard by which they build sites which can help with those right. issues. That said, that's still too many errors if your goal yeah. is to not have errors. <laughs> <laughs> I, I know on um, federal sites, at least, there's a the Section 508, which is what kind of governs uh, web accessibility. Right. I, I don't know that states have to abide by that. Um, obviously, uh, they, they should. Many states, and I know there. Kansas is one, Kansas has what they call Policy 1210. Okay. Policy 1210 is basically just them saying, we will adhere to Section 508 guidelines to be WCAG 2.0 AA. Okay. As debate. Like they just said, it's just a pass through policy, basically, on that. Right. Okay. If a state has not, you know, done their own policy or whatnot, that's uh, everybody. Yeah, I mean, that's on you all to, you know, each listener make sure to check your state laws and and what compliance they set, if any. <laughs> and if they don't, then contact somebody and tell them. Pass due, folks. We we don't build three story buildings without elevators. We don't put in stairs without a ramp alternative. You know we have already decided that we can make this part of our system in the physical space, and it's just a right. thing we do. There's no reason it can't be a thing we do in the digital space. They there there's some other stuff here. North Carolina's website includes a slideshow with the number to call for assistance and uh, illustrated <laughs> symbols of the disease oh. caused by the virus, but the text is part <sighs> of the images making it only accessible visually. Alaska's website includes links to public health mandates as PDFs, which are terrible in screen readers. I just, I, I, I see all this and all I can think of is uh, it's designed by management. It, it's like the... Uh, Somebody said we need our PowerPoint so we can go show it right. to so-and-so. And then they say, now let's just put this on the website because it has all the information. But exactly. nobody yeah. said, "Yeah, but." Yeah, it's the like, like it's the the person who is ultimately making the decisions. You know, like the director or the program manager, et cetera. They're responsible for just making these decisions, and they they're not a web expert. They're not trained in this, and but they're still making decisions about how to do it and what goes on there. They're not trusting their. Well, I don't even know if they're hiring any experts, but. Some do, and, yeah. and that's mentioned in this article that some of the states did contract with people to help. Amy Adams Ellis is a spokesperson for the North Carolina Department of Health, and she noted that the site includes a toolbar called AudioEye, which gives users additional options for accessibility. Now, one, that doesn't help you for something like a slideshow embedded on the site where mm. your images have the text burned in. It just doesn't. Um, that toolbar is not going to make that text accessible to any user. Right. The, the second thing I want to call out to, uh, because there, 
this was uh, one of my best controversial moments so far in the history of Drunken UX. <laughs> I shared a few weeks ago on Instagram and Twitter a, a screenshot of a university site that had an accessibility toolbar, a mm-hmm. custom-built accessibility toolbar, and I shared a, a comment about it saying, hey, look at this, isn't it great that these folks are trying to provide accommodations and tools for these users? Mm-hmm. Many of you were <laughs> you very quick... Me. To point you out, got served, man. <laughs> I yeah, folks were very quick to be like, "No, that's terrible accessibility." Yeah, because you shouldn't be trying to override the assistive tools that the users are already using. You know, if you're using Jaws or NVDA or things like the screen readers like this, most of them, you know, already have their controls baked in. Yeah. You know, some of them will already be using things like style sheets in their browser to change contrast and stuff like that. My counterpoint was I both agree and get it, but that shows an organization that is interested at least in providing accommodation. <sighs> All right. And they're I, trying. I have a counterpoint to that though. They are acknowledging they are I agree that they're acknowledging that it's important or acknowledging that it's something they should be doing. The concern that I have is that they might think, oh well, we put this tool on. It was easy, so we're happy about that, and now we're good. We can walk away. Right. Accessibility solved. That is a genuine problem, yes. Yeah, and they're not actually really addressing the problem as an ongoing effort. You know, you, you want to apply the remedies and then follow up and verify that it's actually doing it, and turnkey solutions aren't going to do that because, like you mentioned, Im- text burned into onto images isn't going to be read by these tools as well, you know, like fake buttons and PDFs and other things. It's not going to catch those. Right. The next point I put in my show notes, I bolded it, I triple underlined it, <laughs> I put a, a winky smiley face under it with a sad emoji and an yeah, apricot. Did. I don't I don't know. Um, I don't just, know why the apricot's there. I don't really either. Um, <laughs> I've never eaten an apricot, so I wouldn't even know what it's good for. <laughs> Forzano was also unable to use the site's chatbot Another issue that did not register in Wave. Now, <laughs> folks, pull up a pew to the Church of Fenan. <laughs> First and foremost, uh, and and uh, earmuffs, earmuffs. That yes, earmuffs. Why the fuck are you putting a chat bot on your COVID nineteen <laughs> site? What purpose does that possibly serve? There is no way you can tell me that you have had the time to make that tool adequate and functional and interactive in a way that solves a problem better than your website would. Dude, you worked in higher ed too. You know what it is. Oh, I know. Believe me, I know. But some people need to go to church. So (laughs) don't do that. Not to mention the fact that, like as this pointed out, the chatbot existed. It didn't register as an error, but it was inaccessible to the people that tested it. Mm-hmm. So it's not even a feature that can be used by those people that you want to try to help out. It just doesn't make sense. I have I railed on Twitter two or three days ago again about chatbots because of the whole um, thing that came up with Podcast Addict. Podcast Addict got booted off Google Play Store. The guy who wrote Podcast Addict shared a screenshot of his Twitter DM interaction 
the Google Play Store um, account on Twitter said, hey, DM us, let's help you out. He did Mm -hmm. and got a chat bot as the service element. And (laughs) the outcome of that exchange was almost so comical, it would make you cry at how bad it was. (laughs) And this was Google. This was Google with all of the AI algorithms and access to systems that they have. And the tool was garbage. <laughs> so don't use a chatbot on your COVID-19 site. Don't use a chatbot on your site, period. Just don't do it. If you want the full rant on that, go back. I think it's episode 55 or 56. I <laughs> literally spent an episode ranting about this. Don't do it. Uh, before you think that you know everything is insurmountable and can't be done, Maine and New Mexico had sites that didn't register any errors. So it's possible to do, folks. It's not hard. It's actually quite easy to build a site if you just build a site with a little care and attention to detail. (laughs) Anyway, go check this out. It's over at themarkup.org. The link is in the show notes. Uh, Give it a read and just consider, you know, use it as sort of a framework for considering how you approach your audiences and and what you do about accessibility and how you apply it to your sites. This is a, a, a request, actually, that came in from a, a friend of mine and listener who works in libraries and was interested in our take on how library websites stack up. And we've done this before with weather sites, restaurant sites, car dealers. Um, and so I thought, you know, yeah, we, we're overdue for this kind of episode. So let's l- look at a bunch of library websites and see how the state of this is. Um, we are going to try to stick primarily to public libraries, not like academic or research libraries for this uh, conversation. I will have to break uh, with that at one specific point, um, only because the data was really good uh, for what mm. I want to articulate, but they only looked at uh, academic websites. So first and foremost, I want to take a look at an article. This was by James Day over Library Technology Launchpad. Okay. Um, one thing we see is that there are libraries starting to take their web presence a lot more seriously than they used to. Um, and they understand the need to provide services and provide information through them in a way that requires an elevated experience. What James Day said is that the user experience librarian is a new job title. Institutions such as New York Public Library, Cambridge University, University of Arizona, and the University of Virginia have a dedicated user experience librarian. And that's a new thing for this world. Acknowledging that that person isn't just doing UX for a website, it's literally UX for the library, the same way like you think about casino UX and things like that. The only caveat I want to have here is I think saying that libraries starting to take it seriously I think that librarians in general take all the stuff very seriously. They just might not have the specialized skills necessary to apply their like knowledge of information science to the like admittedly very specific set of skills for doing like web presences. All every librarian I've ever known takes everything about the library super seriously like they're they're really passionate about working in libraries yeah, so yeah no that's absolutely yeah. fair 
everything in this episode, like, please, if you are a librarian or you know one, please understand we fully respect the care that librarians have about the library and its product. One thing a lot of the problems that we're going to highlight come back to is this thing where a lot of public libraries, the maintenance of their site becomes one of those other duties as assigned responsibilities yeah. for somebody yes. who isn't a web developer. And right. like, just like you say, they may be the, the best librarian in the world in the mm-hmm. physical space, but that doesn't necessarily mean those skills just magically translate to building a website. If they did, we wouldn't have a lot of the problems that we have in the industry in general. We, we've talked about this on the show before. You and I, this is what we do professionally, and we don't even know everything. Yeah. <laughs> there's there's stuff that like we constantly have to like sharpen up on, and accessibility is definitely one of them. We have to paddle our boards up that wave the same as everybody else. And let me tell you, my arms are starting to get damn tired the older I get. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, like, it's it's totally understandable, like, any of the areas, like, for improvement or anything on a library website. We we see you, librarians. We love, we love what you're doing. <laughs> <laughs> and to that end, one thing I'm, I want to be very clear about, we are going to talk about a lot of problems. I'm not going to call out anybody. I'm not going to tell you which websites we looked at. I'm not going to go into like where some of these issues are specifically bad explicitly because I don't want them to feel bad and feel right. like they've done a bad job. I will probably call out some folks who I think are doing good job. Mm-hmm. Do good job. Good Lord, I can't <laughs> talk tonight. Doing a good job uh, on various things because I think celebrating some of that stuff is very different sure. from pooping all over it. <laughs> <laughs> now that is not our intent, but we do have to draw attention to some of these, uh, sure. some of these issues. So as I've got, and I'm literally sitting here with like a dozen, uh, uh, library sites open from what mm-hmm. I looked at. Just, I, I couldn't even tell you how many I clicked through probably a hundred. <laughs> <laughs> I basically typed public library into Google and just started opening up local sites and looked around for a few minutes on each one. Yeah. So let's start with layout, because layout's the first thing you notice. You land on a library website, and the the layout is the thing that speaks to you first and foremost. My favorite thing about this was there is so much, especially in... Let's clarify one other thing real fast. Mm-hmm. There's a big difference. Like, And when I say big difference, I mean the gap is like Grand Canyon in terms yeah. of a major city's public library site. Oh, yeah. And your average community public right. library site houston uh, denver detroit even sorry detroit you know these folks are large cities they have i i don't want to say oh they're well funded and have all these resources because i know even they struggle with that but they simply are better provisioned than your average community is and the difference is staggering in some cases Ithaca is not a particularly big city. I think that when all the students are here, I think our population is around maybe 40,000, if that, and that's only half the year. But our library site is great. They they did a phenomenal job just with everything, and the Finger Lakes library system does a really good job of supporting that. Yeah, I, I think it comes down to like to how, how well supported is that public library. <laughs> and a huge... Uh, gap there because you say well Ithaca you know not a big city Pittsburgh's 20,000 people we're half of that 
mm-hmm. and we're a big city in Kansas. So you're talking about you can yeah. you drive through a, a town, a city in Kansas, and you're going to routinely see the bulk of our communities under five thousand people. Right. I know that that's you know a little more unique to this area, but even then, most states just from a proportion of population, you know, it's a it's a very long tail kind of curve. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you're, you know, three or four major metros that the state maybe has, and it drops off dramatically and for a long way for the rest of those communities. And those are the ones that I think we're going to see most of these issues in. And right. they're also the ones that need the most help. And that's why I'm like, I don't, I don't want this to feel like us going at you or anything like that, because that's definitely, like I say, we both have a ton of respect for that. Um, right. And hopefully... The goal is, here's the problems, let's draw attention to them, and then here are the ways to go about maybe trying to address some of them. Not all of them, but mm-hmm. pick your things and and you know how we would go about it. So with layout, one thing I saw is when you look at some of these, there is so much like stock CMS layout. And what I mean by that is, if you have built enough or even just seen enough websites built in WordPress and Joomla specifically, you can usually pick them out just by looking at them. And that was something that I ran into multiple times uh, when (laughs) perusing some of these. Joomla in particular, uh, a a very non-customized Joomla website really stands out as being Joomla. Uh, because of just the way they integrate modules and sidebars and things. But even WordPress, you can usually look really quickly at a site and tell, oh, yeah, this is WordPress. If there's no custom development done and it's a canned theme or even a custom theme that's just basic. I haven't done a lot in Joomla, but my my experience with it was that Joomla is what happens when you have a Java developer who learns a little bit of PHP (laughs) and is like, PHP would be better if it was more like Java. I, just a fun fact, I did use Joomla for quite a while, many, many years ago. I haven't in a long time, and it's probably, hopefully, much better now. But um, I, I, and that's why I guess maybe that jumped out at me was because I did have enough exposure to it to, like, recognize those those design patterns. One of those patterns that applies to both of these is, my God, widgets, widgets fucking everywhere. Mm -hmm. A widget for everything. Or... You know, yeah. like a, a graphical image stamp for every service or every certification or every <laughs> service they offer. Everything has to have a widget, a box. Uh, my God. Like the point of a library or any kind of archive is to kind of collect everything. Like, like you want the more things you have in an archive, the richer and better the archive is. I can totally see how that uh, that mindset could be applied to, oh, well, obviously the website, the more things we put on it, the better the website will be. Aaron, um, while we're sitting here talking, mm-hmm. just threw a link right into our Slack, or our Discord, sorry, our Discord channel for you. I want you Ooh, to Discord. open that up uh, while we're sitting okay. here so that you are looking at the same thing I'm looking at right now. <laughs> yeah, but, I saw this one earlier. <laughs> right? I mean, is this not literally the widgets, widgets everywhere problem? Yeah. And so it's... to describe this to folks, what you've got is it's a it's a very basic layout. It's, you know, a white background. Um 
kind of a menu, sort of. It's like it's literally what happens when a tabbed menu has three times too many items, so your tabs actually yeah. wrap on each other. And the tabs, many of them have drop downs. So they've got a carousel right in the middle that's rotating many of these same. Oh, I didn't realize it was a carousel. Yeah, the middle deal there, uh. right in the middle is a, is a carousel. And notice, right, these are all images, it looks like. Yeah. yeah. So yep. images with text in them. So again, we're going to talk about accessibility here in a few, but images with text in them. But just what, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, 19, 20. 21 by my count. Um, widgets, badges. like Yeah. And each one has a little top bar on them as well, which is makes it even funnier in a way. Um, they've got like a little title bar above each one that's dark gray and blue text. And it's not, not pretty. It is not pretty is my point. The, the expectation seems to be like in, in how I think they would anticipate a user using the site is to sit and read the whole like page right, and not there's no structure there's, to it. Yeah, it's it's not using any like conventional layout patterns or anything. I mean, it's using like a three column layout, but I if you were to tell me like, oh, where's the contact us link part of the page? Other than like the parts that are in the header, like I, I don't know, <laughs> I don't know where it would. Oh, there's there's the about about link. It's impossible to know where anything is on this homepage without literally looking at every single item yeah. and reading it. Basically, there's no no hierarchy. No IA to it, no flow to it. They've just put everything up that they think is important, um, and right. that's a, that's a problem. And this is something that you know we're looking at this one here because this one was by far I think the worst I found for this yeah. particular problem. But a lot of the sites suffer from some form of that kind of problem. Right. Doing a clean UX and understanding how to get rid of stuff you don't need and like really streamline your content is not an intuitive thing to do. And I completely understand how a like a library that is doing the best it can may not know that. Like I or any site really. Yeah. Like if it's a restaurant or whatever else, it's it's not an intuitive thing. Mm. Like having less content, less is more. It's it's something that you learn when you do this, and so I don't yeah. think there is. I'm just scanning the show notes here. I don't think there's mm -hmm. a single problem here that I would say is a library problem. Like none of it is right. unique right. to a library because it's a library. These are all normal problems that every kind of website has. It's just I think many of these are more pervasive for reasons that we will get to when we start talking about the problems, like the underlying problems that cause these issues. What I, I will give them credit for two things on this. Um, one of them is that they have a very uh, current notice about COVID-19 and what the library is doing with that right at the top of the page. Oh God, I've seen like, so many COVID-19 banners on these sites. <laughs> I know, but it's like, you know, kudos to them. Like, because that's a really important thing to know. It and is. they made it really obvious. <laughs> one one of my local friends who works at our library has been very vocal about they've been bending over backwards to provide a number of services, hand-delivering books, uh, even in some mm -hmm. cases, and pushing their digital services. Like, they really have been doing a ton, and kudos to them for that. And the fact that most of these sites figured out a way to get that messaging onto their homepage in a fashion. Yeah. I Am I going to say that I wouldn't recommend better approaches in some cases? No, because I definitely would. 
but at least it is there and it I don't know that like anywhere had it like hidden or out of the way like it was either at the very tippy top in a red banner mm -hmm. or right under their navigation in something that was set off like generally speaking if you wanted to know that information you could find it quickly so that that's definitely something that is good and something that does make using a known CMS like WordPress or, or Joomla mm -hmm. or or whomever you want to use. I know there's a player in this space too um, that does like it's, they're like a municipal website CMS. Right. I know they operate in this space too. Mute, mute, uh, civic something, Civic Press, Civic something. Okay. Um, and I know they they do this too. Here's the other thing that jumps out at me too is uh, one of the risks you run is using something like WordPress in particularly. You don't want a library site to be a blog. WordPress right. obviously likes being a blog. Um, a lot of WordPress <laughs> themes like being a blog. And I did see a couple where they sort of left their homepage as sort of one of those feeds. And so they were right. using posts as a means of conveying information, which is good. But it resulted yes. in a long homepage right. without like good visual breakup of that content. And it just mm -hmm. made the page long as a con. You just had a, a homepage that was basically a wall of text. And again, that text changes and it has no information hierarchy. So the first thing on the page is, is just the latest thing. It's not the most important thing. And I have no right. way of knowing what the fourth thing down the page will be as a result. And so I would recommend avoiding that. Use your homepage to feature services, to feature your audiences, to feature the things right. and events that are utility and purpose and give people an understanding of what's going on. There's no point in, in having 10 blog posts on your front page listed out because nobody cares. Or just if you have to have them on the homepage because you do update it frequently, just do the headlines. Like don't put the whole content. Yes. Just put like a current updates or something in a block on the page, put the headlines in a bulleted list, done. Use a, a widget. And then people know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So before we go to the next thing, I like the fact that they have the search box is really easy to see on the screen. Yeah. It's right at the top. And then also the menu, even though like we kind of ragged on the tab menu a little bit, they did a pretty good job with organizing the stuff. Like the the menu items, I do have to read through all of them. I can't quickly scan it. And I have to make some guesses about where stuff's going to be. This site is keyboard accessible. Yeah, the menus they they've got uh, some of them have drop downs and the drop downs are keyboard accessible. Yeah, it could be reduced a bit. They could probably stand to have things be organized a little bit better. But overall, though, like it's not bad. And like if you just take the top third of like just the top initial portion of the page, like the above the fold, if we're still using that term, um, you've got the COVID nineteen notice. You've got all these like tabs and things that are are like the actual content you're going to be clicking on and you go to search box. I mean, that's the, that's really what you need. And they did a good job of that. It, and all the other stuff, the, the clutter and everything, you have to scroll down to get to it. Let me say this as a defense. I think you'll agree with me. Mm -hmm. Ugly, but usable mm -hmm. is okay. Yeah. I don't mind if it's ugly, if it's usable. Right. Ugly doesn't have to impede usability. Um, ugly, you know, if, if, your site is using Comic Sans. Yes, I saw library sites using Comic Sans on their front page. <laughs> Am I going to like it? No. 
But if that's the biggest problem on your homepage, you can get away with that. And I always say, look at Craigslist. Craigslist is not a pretty website. They are an ugly website, but they know their job. You know, they know what they're trying to be and do, and they can get away with it. And library sites can be that as well. Mm-hmm. Who cares if it's not well designed or it's needed? You couldn't afford to hire an agency to come in for fifty grand yeah. and give you a layout. Don't worry about that. Make it ugly, but just make it usable. Case in point. Right. Many of these sites are responsive, but that's it. And the reason I say it that way is because responsive doesn't mean mobile-friendly. In fact, right. badly articulated responsive design can <laughs> be worse than no responsive design, in my opinion. Right. The way this happens, I think, in a lot of cases is somebody comes in, maybe a volunteer, you know, who knows, and they've applied a responsive theme. You know, let's say they're using WordPress and they had a can theme that was okay. Again, you know, it's, it's fine. Um, and it's got some responsive elements built into it. But then it's handed over to people who have no understanding of how to do content design and, and content modeling mm-hmm. for responsive elements. And so they're just putting all their widgets in the page and all their graphic items in the page and all their content blocks in with no thinking about how that's going to reflow on a mobile device. That's what I mean when I say like responsive doesn't mean mobile friendly. And a lot of the right. sites that aren't the higher end big city sites very few of them were what I would consider mobile friendly, particularly because so many widgets, badges, you know, yeah. not ads, but you know things that would be equivalent to an ad, links to their services, things like that. It's just it turns into just a giant list of those things on your mobile phone, and that's not usable. That feels a little bit like the thing we mentioned earlier, where like, oh well, we checked off the responsive box, we're good, right? And like it just you know. Always test. Is it responsive? Is there a responsive yeah. Well, yes, we do have a media query in the CSS. <laughs> okay. Like, the, the the compliance issue there is not, did we do this thing that ostensibly works? It's, does it actually work in practice? Yeah. And that's that's always should be the, the whether or not you're checking the boxes. Can we do the thing we're intending to do with this? So there's another article from the uh, Library Technology Launchpad that they did, and this is where I, I mentioned I'm going to talk about academic libraries. They did a review of the top 100 academic libraries in the country um, and pulled mm. out some stats, and there's a lot of very cool stats and information in this article, so I, I would recommend go look at it. It will also be in the show notes. There's actually, there will be several things in the show notes that we don't refer to directly, so go mm. check those out if you get a chance. But this was some form of libraries or locations and or hours appeared on only 57% of website (laughs) menus. Oh my gosh. So this takes me back about two seasons. (laughs) This is episode four. The most important things that people care about when it comes to a library. Where are you and when are you open? (laughs) And only 57% of sites had that. That blew my mind. And not only that, like they they broke this down and they they collated um, the some of the the language that was used and the language that was used will throw you off. The number one link that conveyed this information was just labeled libraries. Number two <laughs> was libraries and collections. Number three oh. was ours, and only seven websites said ours. 
Seven wow. more websites said libraries and hours. So 14 yeah. if you want to round that up. And then it goes from their locations, campus libraries, hours and locations, libraries and departments, libraries and spaces, hours for the week. So it's not even like 57% even got this right, in my opinion. I think a lot of them got this wrong as a consequence. Okay, so many years ago when I worked at a college, I, I, was, I was working on reorganizing the campus library's website. And this is a bit of a contentious issue. It was my my first run in with librarians, and they're they're very, like I said, protective. Before, they're very passionate about what they do and protective. Protective, yeah, that's I a good think way is, to put is it. a good word. Yeah. Um. So, uh, and you know, they were both like, you know, they were both web users from like the '90s, and they had a long history. And it's just like, you know, stuff was just constantly changing, and they just they hadn't kept up with the newest best practices. But anyways. I did a, an actual usability, like a Steve Krug style usability test. I, we brought in students. We gave them gift cards to the campus cafe, and we did a um, like a, a page paper page mock up of the site, and I, I recorded all the sessions. And it took a, a few hours, but we got some really great feedback from that. And if you are someone who has influence on the layout or the architecture of the library site. I highly recommend this. Um, just find five to ten people who patronize your site. Uh, diversity is really good here. So like different ages, different demographics. And then ask them to do like a few different tasks. Find out what's interesting or useful to them when they go to the library site. Get the words and get like the tasks that they try to do. And you, you'll, you won't miss stuff like this. Yeah. <laughs> um, another one that was fun was some form of search or find appeared on only 34% of website menus. Wow. So, yeah. Okay, wait. Is it because not all of them had search or find features? I mean, that requires some server-side technology. Um, that is something I couldn't answer without going through and, okay. and like reading the actual uh, research okay. they did. What, what I think they did was it looks – and just looking from the other results and things that they included in this article – I think they're basically saying, you know, what's in not just the menu, but I think they really mean masthead, so to speak, of the page. Got it. But this, there was more consistency here. Find, search and find, search. Find, borrow, request, which I think is a little confusing. Find materials. Maybe okay, okay but maybe I want to find something on the website, not a material. Because material to me implies books or, or, you know, magazines, whatever. Search tools, that one's fine. Find and cite. Eh. Search collections, search mm -hmm. library, search library resources, search this website. And that's one thing uh, that I will mention, too, in a lot of the ones I saw. There was a lot of examples of search being, like, split, like, two forms search. Like, you're either searching mm -hmm. the website or you're searching the collections, you know, or whatever external yeah. databases they have. And they they basically just give you two boxes and you just pick one of them, and that's how... Uh, you go about it. Yeah. I, I think that's you know I'm I'm not calling foul on that. I think that's okay because I I know mm -hmm. those external databases are kind of their own beast in general. I want to call out the Tompkins County Public Library, our local library. Their search box is right at the top. It's gigantic. It has a drop down selector at the beginning of it that lets defaults to catalog if you want to search for stuff in the library, but you can also select website if you want to search the content of the website. I thought that was super cool. Yeah. 
ours, I'm looking at our local, um, and so sorry, Pittsburgh, but, um, their search, <laughs> their search is just a search box. I'm not, I'm not going to say anything like super bad. Their search box yeah. is just a search box. So I don't know if that's searching the website or, or other things. Um, they do have mm-hmm. a separate link box for card catalog. So I'm guessing that's a, mm-hmm. you know, the different search. They have a menu icon in the upper right that when I click it, it opens a sidebar flyout menu with nothing in it, <laughs> which I think is, and so talking about, you know, responsive failures, right? I would bet if right. I shrink this page down, their main navigation probably breaks into that, but Got the it. element for the menu itself remains on a wide screen. Even so on, it's, you know, yeah. it's not picking that up. Huh. It's, you know, it's generally well laid out though, for the most part. They have a color palette that they've really settled on, although I see some white text on yellow background. Going to talk about that in a second. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but then they they have the image problem. Um, a- after you get past the main masthead, then it's banners for the eBooks, for the Kansas right. uh, digital thing, for Consumer Reports, for Hoopla. Hoopla shows up everywhere now. Um, and these are all just giant image banners, basically, image ads for all of these services many of which will take you away from the website entirely, which is something else. That's I n- note that in the, our notes, but taking people mm-hmm. away from our, your site because of those third-party services is kind of a eh, tough thing. Yeah. There's an article at Fail Lab that used the word clutter when describing the problems with library websites, and that's what we will see a lot of, is that clutter that has no... Hey, have you ever, like, do you ever watch Hoarders? <laughs> Yes, I was just thinking that. Yeah, like if if you've ever like talked to somebody who is a hoarder or watched any of those shows, the hoarder generally knows where everything is, and that's one of their mm-hmm. biggest fears is by cleaning up, they are afraid they will yeah. lose things um, because they can tell you where anything is in all of their piles. Um, I'm a digital hoarder. I can find anything I've backed up or saved anywhere on my machine, even though it makes no rhyme or reason to anybody but me. I'm not a hoarder. Uh, I do have clutter in my house, but I I can relate to that. I know where stuff is. If someone moves it and doesn't tell me, then I don't know where it yeah. is. My shop workbench is a disaster. I can tell you everything yeah. that's on it, though, and where it is because it's my <laughs> disaster. I made it. That's where I think some of this clutter problem comes from is, you know, it's it's perception bias, right? People are using their own experience or experiential bias, whatever their experiences with their website. They feel like, well, I know where everything is. And that then is used to say, well, if other people can't find it, that's not my fault. That's a problem that we saw a lot um, in higher ed or really like any industry specific website where you have jargon like registrar or bursar like those aren't terms that anyone uses in day-to-day life so we shouldn't use those for things that are like critical mission critical links right um i i gotta say that article by phil lab is amazing and has so much good recommendations and content in it if you are someone that works or has influence over a library website highly recommend reading it there's really good advice in there so why clutter? Why is clutter a problem with the library website? You hit on it a little bit. It's, you know, their responsibility. The library's responsibility is to collect information and make it available. Mm-hmm. I would argue that this I mean, is... Like, an archive by definition yeah. like, is hoarding. I, I mean, it's... The library is just kind of a sanctioned hoard. Hoarding knowledge, media, other things. 
it's just organized. I think one of the bigger problems, at least from a web presentational standpoint, is that they really have an audience and service problem that generates this. Okay. It's very similar to what we've talked about in higher ed with this idea of having lots of audiences to serve with lots of goals. Uh, and it. you know, a, a, it's a public library, right? But you can't just mm -hmm. define your audience as the public. That's right. not something you can build towards because the public is too broad. It doesn't narrow anything down. And it leads me to one of my favorite pieces of advice. <laughs> Wait, you can't in the show yet. I yeah, I can't in the show yet, so I can't run through it. No, Yo, but so the advice you'll have to wait till later to get okay, it. You have to wait till it's it's it'll be an Easter egg at the end. But let's just say, <laughs> once you define these groups of people, you can write a piece of paper that will help you understand their goals and needs and experiences in a way that you can use them to inform site design. So, for instance, you know, public libraries provide such a huge array of services that they didn't use to. When I, I remember one of the big things yeah. when I was a kid, um, uh, like mid-90s, early 90s, they start, our public library started getting into VHS lending. That was a whole mm -hmm. new thing. They that blew my mind. I, they, I've, I've rented, I've borrowed video games from a public library. What, when I lived in the board Midwest, I, I, yeah, I, I know it's some amazing. libraries that do board games now. Computers were the big thing. So, you know, I'm going back to like mm -hmm. 1993, 94. They had a dial-up computer. You could go in, sign up for your hour, and use the internet. I didn't have a computer then. That wasn't, you know, we didn't have that in my household. So I went to the, I could walk to the library and use their computer for an hour and be in a chat room, Blues Traveler chat room, as it turns out, um, <laughs> if you want to know why. Very strange child growing up. But now... There was something, and I wish I could remember where I read this at. I think it was maybe on Imager or one of those, that somebody was sharing like a ex library experiences um, tweet thread or something. And one of the comments was about the old adage of like, you know, library, shh, you know, got to be quiet in the library. Libraries aren't quiet places now because right. they do so much more. They're having events. They're doing things for kids constantly with like uh, group learning over the summer and, and camps. And our our uh, local library does 3D printing services now. You can actually rent time on 3D printers. What? Um, they have meeting rooms for things. They, you know, libraries do so much more than they used to do. And they service everybody from young parents needing somewhere to, to distract their kids to retirees who are coming in to, mm. you know, read murder mystery novels to homeless people. Talk to a librarian yeah. about how they work with homeless people now as, you know, a place yeah. where somebody homeless can just come sit and not get harassed about having to leave right away. Right. You have event attendees coming in, but these are all groups you can define and start to understand and then figure out what are their needs and how do their needs inform what we should have right on that homepage and in our navigation. It's really a, like a community common space anymore. Um, and it's not just like students and bookish types wanting to go and read more books and study. It's just a lot of different purposes. Yeah. And it, it really underpins why libraries now are almost more important than they've ever been, even mm -hmm. though, you know, we're constantly talking about what should get funding or shouldn't. And we won't go into the politics of that. Actually, we will. We have to here in a second um, because that's part of the problem. But mm -hmm. the the number of services they offer just inherently then creates the clutter. 
That's why there are links to all these ebook services and all of their partner uh, lending services and all of the state, you know, taxes. You can go to a library and get your taxes done in some places. Like, there's just all this random stuff that they do. And we need to start thinking about how we can use IA to hone that in and create, you know, reasonable silos to help people find that information in, in a timely manner mm-hmm. and in a way that makes sense instead of just putting a link to every one of them on the homepage. It's why the widget problem exists. It's why the, the badge thing is happening because everybody's just saying, well, we don't know what to do, so we're just going to link to every single service right on the homepage so everything gets a button and then it's just a mess. The last big thing is accessibility, and I want to get to this before we dig into the underlying um, problem and what can be done about it. Accessibility uh, is an issue everywhere, obviously, and like I say, we tie this back to the warmer topic uh, with the COVID-19 sites. One of the most common things is one of the most common things that I see everywhere, and that's having a big masthead with a giant photo and white text on it. (laughs) Right. It's a contrast problem. It, you can't control where that text falls on that image when you resize the browser for different screens or whatever. And you can't generally read white text on a busy background. You have to give it contrast. Yet, yeah. every, time and time again, I'm seeing that. There were a couple sites I looked at that had no active or focus states on links and menus. So tabbing through, you had no idea. Yeah. You couldn't find anything. The menu, uh, so you had mentioned the site that we were looking at earlier, and you were like, you know, their mm-hmm. menu's not actually that bad. And I said, yeah, you can even tab to it and keyboard control it. There, on more than one occasion, were sites with drop-down menus that were invisible to a keyboard or screen reader. <laughs> it, you couldn't tab into uh. them, you couldn't open them, you couldn't find them. They, you, they were gone until you physically clicked on them. Just reiterating the point from earlier... These are not problems exclusive to libraries right. by any stretch of the imagination. Yeah, no, not at all. <laughs> these are like just you go to any random website, I guarantee most of these problems will come up. <laughs> One that jumped out at me on a site was uh, the use of a learn more button. Over and over and over. And learn more is no different than read more. Read more, read more, read more. What happens when the screen reader hits that link? Read more, read more, read more, read more. Read more what? There's no context associated with that. <laughs> click here, click here. Click here, click, click here. here, yes, click here. We we click have here. this uh, this modality that we feel like, well, if we're reproducing an interactive piece, then we want consistent nomenclature. But there are ways, yeah, to the sighted user, they know they can associate click here with the visual space it's in, um, or read more or whatever, to know what it's related to through context uh, cues. But you can add the rest of the text. Read more of this story about how our COVID-19 response is going. And hide that from normal visual users, but make it available to screen readers. And use tooltips so that when you hover them, you get that full context. Right. Here's where this got way worse for me. These learn more buttons weren't buttons. They also weren't links. They were clickable span tags. As a result, they had no title associated with them. There was no way to give them focus with a keyboard. I assume there was JavaScript bound to like a click class or something like that to make them work. But like there was literally, if I had been using that with a screen reader or trying to just use a keyboard, there would have been no way for me to interact with anything that they had on their homepage um, from that widget standpoint because every one of them 
had that button on it instead of using an actual button element or an actual you know anchor tag. That's one of those things. It's just I, I, I do have to say it's a little unacceptable, only because there's no way it, it, you can't screw that up on accident. You know what I mean? Right. Like I don't think you're doing it maliciously, but it's it's a CMS doing that or a plugin. Like somebody is using something that was flat out designed wrong. And I won't say that very often, right. but that's one of those cases. Um, I did take a few sites and I ran them through uh, the Axe plugin just to see where things stood. So I've got four of them here. And again, I'm not going to go deep into any of these, but uh, the first one had 36 errors. The second one had 50 errors. The third one had 229 errors. The fourth one had 54 errors. The last one had 171 errors. <laughs> so Jeez. many, so many of these errors are color contrast. 25 of 36, 41 of 50, um, 203 of 229, uh, 34 of 54, 51 of 171. Color contrast seems to be the biggest thing, and I think this is where we get into that other duties as assigned problem, right? Yeah. You can be the best librarian in the world, but you're not a designer and you're not thinking about color science and all that. That's not not an intuitive thing to think no. about at all. Yeah. Um, but yet these problems are the most prevalent ones to many of those audiences we just talked about. Or even the word more thing you mentioned with the span instead of a button or a link. Like that's not that's something that you need to have really specific knowledge about like web development and web presentation to know like why that makes a difference or why it matters. So these, these kind of problems take, you know, specialty skills, right. To resolve mm -hmm. fixing accessibility problems in particular. That's not just something you, yeah. you know, learn in your garage overnight as, as somebody working on one of these sites. So what is the problem? Why is this an issue? And I have labeled this the funding problem. You get what you pay for. <laughs> classic case of you get what you pay for the quality of these sites reflects the amount of money that is invested in them and the reality of that is that number is so small that virtually none of these sites have somebody dedicated to that it is the other duties as assigned problem that we see so many places yeah. the restaurateur running their own website and not thinking about the, the fact they need the menu and they need the hours or they shouldn't put white text on a yellow button like they just they just don't know and hiring somebody to do that even part-time the money's just not there it's not the library's fault municipal funding just doesn't prioritize that kind of hiring in you know that deep down the silo of municipal needs right yeah it, a, a lot of times you know some of this like i say is done by volunteers um, the, the librarians take it over and, and do the best they can. Even if they did hire a web professional, accessibility is a specific subset of additional training that you have to have. And like we've mentioned before, many, many sites have accessibility problems because either they don't prioritize it or they don't know to make it an issue. So when you're already dealing with a funding issue, like, Getting the accessibility thing right can be really hard. <laughs> and there's the case, you know, maybe you get lucky. Maybe you find a young mm -hmm. kid, you know, 18 years old, maybe he doesn't even want to go to college, but he loves building websites. 
and mm-hmm. he was eager to come in and show himself and build a portfolio, and he's willing to volunteer maybe and and do that or as an internship or something like that even, and he can come in and he can knock a, a killer side out. Uh, but mm-hmm. if you can't afford to keep them there, yeah, that that's where you run into those problems like the responsive sites that aren't really very mobile-friendly. Somebody came in and did the responsive stuff, or they were smart enough to use the theme to make it responsive, but then it got handed over, and there was nobody there to help maintain that because you can't retain talent. And this is, again, not a problem unique to libraries. Retaining right. talent is a hard thing to do in a, this competitive field. Yeah. That, I guess that's, that's, a, that's a really good reason to go with, um, you know, like a lower tech solution, either, either using a WordPress type thing or going with like a static site or just something that is not, that is, if you have a bespoke solution for your library website, that you're going to have a bad time, I think. And uh, one, one other point I wanted to make is a site that, tries to do accessibility like you know the thing we mentioned earlier with the COVID-19 and the what is it uh i audio i audio i yeah yeah so if they're using a turnkey accessibility solution I, I i give them a small amount of props just for caring enough about it to even do that um if you're doing accessibility and you don't quite hit all the marks or it's not done perfectly but you're still trying that's great and i like you get all the applesauce for that. It's, you know, like it's, it's still like you should test and everything and try to always be better. But at the same time, you know, kudos to you for at least caring enough to try it. And I, I fall into part of this camp because I did volunteer a couple of years back to help a small community library site upgrade their experience. They were using just wordpress.com as their library host. Mm-hmm. And so I helped them get on a real host. We set them up a WordPress site. I, you know, brought in a canned theme and set them up. But it's it was the same problem that I knew they were going to have in that I tried to get it get it set up simple for them because while I was needing to help them out, not needing to, I wanted to help them out. The reality was I knew I couldn't moonlight all their support without end. I needed to give them something that was simple enough for them to use and didn't include features that would be too onerous for them to take on and maintain. The result was just like many of these sites, it was a very simple looking site that didn't have a lot of dynamic Mm -hmm. stuff to it. It didn't go out of its way to include a lot of features outside of a calendar for their events and an area for them to talk about, you know, their upcoming projects and link off to, you know, their search and their catalogs and things. Mm -hmm. And could I have done better? Absolutely. I could have built a significantly better site than that. And I would have handed it to them, and it would have ended up kind of crumbling a little bit as a consequence. Not because they didn't care, because they absolutely did care. That was why they wanted the help. But they just didn't have the infrastructure to keep it moving at that point. Right. And I wish I could have done better at that. And all I can say is this is one of those areas where, as an up-and-comer, as somebody, you know, if you are looking to get into this industry... This is one of those places where if you're willing to put in some volunteer time, mm-hmm. you can probably get, you know, a, uh, what do they call that quid pro quo, quid pro quo write off, um, in kind. That's the word I'm looking for. You know, right. it, uh, you could consider it a donation of services that could be a tax write off, um, as a, <laughs> a service you provide to them to build something and put it in your portfolio. 
consider that. But if you do it, just make sure you're thinking about what happens after you're gone. Because that's right. where I think a lot of this falls apart. This is also where I'll, I'll advocate for the perfect use for some premium canned WordPress themes. Mm -hmm. I, I turn to these a lot for turnkey type stuff where somebody wants something quick and cheap. Uh, and that's a good case here. But if you go to Theme Forest, and I'll throw like a link in there for one of their searches or something. There's a half dozen like library or book centric themes that are on there that range from 20 to $60. That's not much. Most places can afford that kind of money occasionally. And it at least gets you something that is generally affordable that will come with mm -hmm. some amount of support. Usually if you buy a premium theme like off Theme Forest, you get theme author support on it. So if there is a problem, at least there's somebody there to fall back on in some fashion. And your site won't look like it was built in 2009. You know, the <laughs> themes are, you know... They can be a little onerous in their theme options and settings and stuff, but if somebody could go in there, set that up for them, do all the configuration, and then just say, okay, here's the stuff you need to worry about. Here are the pieces that you should care about and do right. That would take a lot of people a long way, and it would get them out of some of these older and less useful designs. Training's key, and upkeep is key, and making it easy is key, I think, to all of those things. Yeah. If you work at a library site, there's some other help. There's the library user experience community. It's over on medium blog.libux.co. Um, Weave is an open access peer reviewed journal for library user experience. One caveat, like on both these kinds of links, library UX is a thing. And if you try to research library UX, you're going to get a lot of information on it, but it's not just website specific. It, and it deals with, like the end-to-end -end UX, the experience in the library physically as well as digitally. So you do, if you want to learn about just the website, you do have to do some digging to get through some of that. But there is a lot of good information, and we'll have a lot of that uh, linked up in the show notes uh, from what we found. But I think, you know, the end story is we all need a little help sometimes, and libraries are no different. Um, and I think they're mm -hmm. a lot more deserving of some of that help maybe than, you know, your local band who will break up next week. <laughs> Emo metal thrash. <laughs> I I think uh, just going back to one thing from earlier. I know that you mentioned that you did the the bare bones site when you were doing it pro bono. Um, just underscoring that if you're gonna do volunteer work, it's always better to go simple. Just uh, um, I lost my train of thought. This drink always best to go simple. I I think yeah. that's a good note to end on. It is always best to go yeah. simple because. Simple means findable. And well, simple means findable, but also means maintainable. Right. Like, like a, if you go for like something complicated, it might be a better solution for now, but you know, who's going to take up the reins after you're gone? Or, you know, if you have someone who's lower skilled, it, it just, it narrows, it narrows the population of who can help maintain and keep it yeah. going. And I'm saying, I'm saying this as someone who like, actively maintains an open source project like we specifically try to keep everything as vanilla rails ruby on rails as possible so that more people can contribute yeah, no that's a great point yeah it's i've seen i see a lot of projects that like they do exciting and they do cutting edge and they do everything else and then they get end up dead in the water because only like a few dozen people have that intersection of technology 
But if you stick with something that is more accessible from like a creation and development perspective, then you're going to have much more uh, durability with your contributors. Yeah, no, that's, I think, an incredibly fair point to make that, yeah, I could have given them something super fancy and complex and eye-catching and all of mm-hmm. this, but now I've just raised the bar for them yeah. to figure out, okay, how to, you know, it's like giving, you know, uh, it's the yeah. Oprah problem, right? You get a yes. car and you get a car. Everybody gets cars and their cars are full <laughs> yeah. of bees and the bees are bringing to you a giant tax liability bill now at the end of this because I didn't think about the fact that I just gave you a $60,000 car that you have to pay for. Oh, right. and don't worry about exactly think about the insurance on that brand new fancy car and, and that you have to put premium gas in it instead of regular unloaded. Like, yep. That's the problem, right? You did the Viperwork Pro Bono. The next person probably won't. And what are they going to charge because of the skills required? The Drunken UX Podcast is brought to you by our friends at NewCloud. NewCloud is an industry-leading interactive map provider who has been building location-based solutions for organizations for a decade. Are you trying to find a simple solution to provide your users with an interactive map of your school, city, or business? Well, NewCloud's interactive map platform gives you the power to make and edit a custom interactive map in just minutes. They have a team of professional cartographers who specialize in map illustrations of many different styles and are ready to design an artistic rendering to fit your exact needs. One map serves all of your users' devices with responsive maps that are designed to scale and blend in seamlessly with your existing website. To request a demonstration or to view their portfolio, visit them online at newcloud.com slash drunkenux. That's nucloud.com slash drunkenux. I hope so everybody found this useful. Uh, I hope that you learned a little something. I hope that uh, if you go check out the show notes and, and look through some of the articles, I think you'll find some pretty darn cool stuff there. As always, if you want to... Uh, ask us questions about this stuff or if you are if you work on a library site and you have a question about how to do something because you're stumped and you don't know you know how to use WordPress or whatever because you're not a web designer um, by all means reach out to us so find us on discord yeah. drunkenux.com slash discord you can hit us on twitter or facebook at slash drunkenux or instagram at slash drunkenux podcast share it out to folks a lot of us know somebody at a public library Re, if, and again, uh, we mentioned it earlier, if you have influence over the development or maintenance of the library website, please read the Fail Lab article in the show notes. Uh, it's called The Ugly Truth About Library Websites. It's like, it's solid. It's such good stuff. And I mean, it's, it's seven years old, but I, the stuff in that article is still very relevant. Most of those sites may so, be seven years old still. And, yeah. and the library technology <laughs> launchpad is another good one to definitely settle into um and i mean it's it's all good advice and it's all stuff that i think we can put to use and find ways to apply uh and when you think about just how important libraries are in society not just you know Mm -hmm. years ago but today and and how easy it is to pretend like they aren't when you sit down and really start breaking this stuff down and considering it as either a user, a developer, or as somebody who is working in the library industry, you discover that it is very important to keep your personas close <laughs> and your users closer. Bye-bye. Let's see ya.